to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello, and welcome back. Thank you. And Alex Lawson. Are we in trouble at all? Well, um, I hey, feel kids, like... I'm home <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the real trouble That is was... a Talkboy reference that Bill is dusting Talk off. Talkboy commercial yeah. reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Uh, I feel like the real person that's in trouble is me because I felt so weird not being on the show, you guys. I yeah. had sort of a little existential crisis about missing it. I really miss being in the room with you guys. <laughs> we miss you too. I mean, I mean, clearly. Um, but I don't know. I was okay, right? Brose was great. I was telling Steve um, that it was a whole new experience for me to just be a listener of the show, to not know like what was coming up next. It was pretty fun. And then you're it's like, definitely and a you're weird like, this thing sucks. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. No, it was, it was fine. Yeah, it was good. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to make a habit of it. You know? uh, I appreciate like that because um, I'm going to live and die by the show. As I've always said, it's a something I really love. So good. missing a week really made me be like, ah, oh, I missed this, guys. I got to go back. The good news is you're back just in time for us to continue talking about Taco Bell because, uh, you know, today is today's the day. Free tacos. Taco Bill over here. You know I love to going. live Moss, so I'm right. glad I'm back to have this conversation right. with you. That, 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 and that the challenge survives under the live Moss doctrine, I think. Yeah, that's yeah. it, for sure. Uh, anything else we got to cover here? Should we just get to the news? Uh, I think we should get right into it. We're going to have a really good show today. We're going to be joined later by our senior reporter, Diana Novak-Jones. And she's going to talk to us about a really interesting case out of Colorado about whether or not landowners were damaged by a nearby cannabis grow facility. It's mm-hmm. one of the first big marijuana cases um, anywhere in the country that sort of pits this weird thing between um, how it's legal in the state of Colorado, yeah. but federally mm-hmm. illegal. So we'll break it all down with Diana a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, uh, different set of landowners uh, having, uh, having their own dispute uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, as you may know, uh, Amazon is, uh, has been shopping around for the location for its next uh, headquarters, Amazon HQ2, as it mm-hmm. sort of pops up in the tech press. Uh, Pittsburgh is one of many cities that has submitted a bid. Uh, it saw that bid uh, disrupted this week by uh, an Allegheny County judge. Uh, the court ruled um, that the city and the county must release the details of uh, their proposal. It was not released publicly. It was just uh, it was you know, behind closed doors. Um, there was a challenge uh, from a media outlet, and this week, uh, like I say, the county court said, uh, actually, uh, per our open records laws, that proposal to Amazon uh, must be made public. That's really interesting because, I, I mean, I think a lot of people will remember when a whole bunch of cities were putting together these proposals for Amazon, that Amazon was sort of going around soliciting these, and a lot of people wanted to know what their cities and counties were promising Amazon. Right. And Pittsburgh is like one of these, there's a lot of different like Rust Belt, um, you know, former manufacturing hub cities that's like trying to, you know, sort of rebrand as a tech hub or innovation Pittsburgh has hub. a leg up because they have some really good colleges there too. So I know the whole the whole thing with uh, Uber was that, or was yeah, it? Yeah, they the, have yeah. that special car. self-driving yeah. car track there. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah, I forgot that was, they the, do. so it's the, it's the breeding ground for that. So they are very much um, a player in this Amazon thing. Um, and they made a bid uh, to have the new Amazon HQ be in Pittsburgh earlier this year. The details, um, as as was so contentious uh, in the in the suit that we're going to talk about, were not made public. But other offers, um, you know, we 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 know generally things like this take the form of tax breaks and some kind of kickbacks, uh, government run incentives for you, company X, to come and have a presence here for right. us. Um, 
We don't know what the sort of total dollar value of those incentives were, but other bids from places like Maryland and New Jersey and Chicago have like gone as high as like five billion and eight billion dollars. So I mean, wow, safe that's to, big. Safe to guess that Pittsburgh is in that area somewhere. It's a, this, it's a very this is a very costly project. Um, but uh, because it was kept sealed, a Pittsburgh TV station, it was WTAE TV in Pittsburgh, filed an open records request with the local government. This is mm-hmm. basically like the municipal form of a FOIA request, right? Um, basically saying, you have to disclose the bid. These are public funds. This is a public project. Um, we deserve to know. Uh, the city office that fields these requests granted it, but the city and the county appealed it to a court, and that's how we ended up in court, battling over the disclosure of this proposal. So what did the, the judge in Allegheny County say? The judge was pretty unambiguous. It wasn't even that complicated of a legal issue. He issued a four-page ruling on Wednesday yeah. um, that said, um, you know, this is a tremendous amount of public money being put forward, and that it, there's, it, there is a very clear public interest to know, and it's implicated by the state's right-to-know laws. Um, the city uh, and the county tried to sort of wiggle out of the exemptions. We don't have to get into the intricacies of Pittsburgh's uh, public disclosure sure. laws. But they basically said, like, oh, we have, like, proprietary and confidential information put forward uh, in this process. And the judge turned that away pretty easily. It was like, because basically it's like... He was yeah. like, you don't have trade secrets. You're not a company. Right. I mean, they, they basically put together this, like, bureaucratic local government panel that's going right. to make an offer to Amazon. They're like, well, you don't sell anything. Yeah. And you don't really have employees for this. You're government employees. And you should fork this over. So that's um, that's about where we stand. He said uh, this should be made public. Um, but it won't be disclosed right away. Both the city and the county have appealed it. Um, so any disclosure is uh, pending an appeal uh, to the state court. It's so interesting in the context of this whole feeding frenzy over over the Amazon headquarters where, you know, you've seen sort of actively Amazon pitting different cities against each other to bid each other for different things. And, you know, there, there's this tension of like people, you know, you cities want these jobs, cities want this economic growth, but what are what are these cities offering and do mm-hmm. people have the right to know that when when it's happening. Yeah, because yeah. on some level, there is an argument to me that it feels a little bit like a race to the bottom. Like sure. how you know, one city decides to go pretty far with the incentives they're willing to give, and then all the other ones have to compete. So there's some value. Well, Amazon in just has that. so much leverage that to, to you know to, yeah. to do this that and by by having and they kept having the different levels where they're like, there's 20 finalists. You all better <laughs> yeah, it was, sweeten the deal. It was reality show ish. Yeah. Well, I mean, it has it was, been. It, it will continue to be probably. It was but. such a. Um, you know, national phenomenon, this particular one that I think even SNL spoofed the process yeah, 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 in a yeah. skit. And, it, so. and it, 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 it takes other forms, too. We, we're talking about Amazon here, and that will be is closely watched and will continue to be as such. But you see it in public uh, financing for sports stadiums. Right. That, for sure. is, that is always a hotly contested thing. Um, whenever cities make Olympic bids, yeah. that always comes up. And arguments about stuff like that um, always sort of try to spin um, – you know, the building of this stadium or the building of this headquarters or the building of an Olympic village as like it'll be an economic windfall for the city or the municipality or whatever. That is that is rarely borne out by the facts. Well, and what's interesting is there there is an argument to be made that there is X amount of potential economic growth or potential sure. everything else. And there are X amount of downsides of sacrificing tax revenue and doing all sorts of things. But what's interesting about this case is 
you can't make that you can't have that rational discussion unless you know actually what the yeah, cities what the are what the cities are. Are, are bidding. That's exactly right. You can have all these existential conversations about stuff like that, but um that is not at issue when you're talking about transparency and that was sort of the money quote from the judge in this case. Said uh, quote this case is not about whether Amazon's locating its second headquarters in this region would provide an economic boost, nor is it relevant, as argued by Pittsburgh and Allegheny County, that public disclosure of the records at issue would sabotage this region's opportunity to compete with other regions of the United States for the headquarters. So, you know, it's just like like you're saying, it's just like we can talk about whether it's good or bad, but let's at least know what the proposal is. Right. So, like I said, it's pending appeal. We're not going to see the proposal uh, soon, but it's certainly a huge development in a, in a probably one of the biggest stories in the tech world right now. Well, another big story, always a big story for the tech industry is copyright law, my beat. So we're going uh-huh. we're gonna to go to that a little bit right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a story I've been following for a long time. Uh, it's about a Long Island attorney who has filed hundreds of lawsuits in Manhattan federal court over the last couple of years. Um, he says that that doesn't make him a, uh, a copyright troll. But uh, as I as I wrote about a lot last week, a federal judge sees things slightly differently. I can I can cut through the legal analysis here. Is he OK? First of all, does this guy live under a bridge? He does not. Okay. Well, uh, that's one favor against. Let's talk more about what he does do if he doesn't do that. So the guy's name is Richard Leibowitz. He's an attorney with a small firm in Valley Stream, New York. Um, starting a few years ago, he began filing these copyright infringement lawsuits at a really high clip against media websites, BuzzFeed, other news websites, uh, claiming that they had posted copyrighted images without authorization. Um, what do you mean by very high clip? How many are we talking? So as of um, as of right now, um, since 2016, he's filed 700 such cases in Ooh. the Southern District of New York, the Manhattan yes. Federal Court. Um, just to put that in context, there, there are about 5,000 cases filed per year um, in right. the whole U.S. Um, just this year, Leibowitz, just his little firm, has filed more than 200 in New York federal court. Wow. So it's a big percent. It's like a it's a non yeah. a non fractional yeah. percentage of yeah. the overall picture All in right. the U.S. So I get that he's filing a lot of these, and it's sort of striking numbers. But people can sue for this. I mean, that's those are copyright infringement cases. So it's true. What's what's different here? It's true. And to be clear, we're not saying, and I, the judge wasn't saying that he had done anything I- illegal or wrong or anything like that. Um, the, the the question is that that this kind of conduct, filing a ton of copyright lawsuits, starts to get opposing counsel and uh, advocacy groups and judges to start calling you um, a copyright troll. Now, I made a joke at the beginning about the bridge. I don't know if this guy's got like colorful hair that sticks <laughs> up and stuff like that. But well, okay, no, like, he's got a jewel. He does have a jewel in his belly. You button. Oh, rub sure, it for sure. good luck. Nice. Yeah, yeah, uh, stuff like well, that. I mean, we're. I'm really used to the term patent troll. Yeah, and it seems a little right. maybe more defined than what goes on in the copyright world. Patent trolls usually, it's you can pretty clearly say like a company that doesn't actually produce anything that just holds a patent right. sues a bunch of people. So it's rooted in they're rooted in the same thing, and it's the same rough idea, and it's a tricky question, and that sort of came up in what we're going to talk about. But the the rough idea, like you said, is someone who they own a copyright as opposed to a patent, but um, they file a ton of lawsuits against a ton of different defendants. And with the aim um, of getting a lot of little settlements really quick, um, the idea is that the defendants, it's easier for the defendant to pay some small fee, a few hundred bucks, a few thousand bucks, um, 
rather than paying the defense. And you find that sort of happy zone where it's it's cheaper to settle yeah. than it is to, to go and do it. The more common place that you see this is um, pornography companies, pornography studios that file thousands of these cases all over the U.S. Um, and, you know, the concern in that situation is a little bit heightened because – the leverage is heightened. Like if you take, if you yeah, look at people the, are like shamed into settlements. Basically. Exactly. If the yeah. fundamental dynamic of, of uh, trolling is that you don't want to go into court because it would cost too much. If you ratchet that up by saying, I don't want to go into court because I don't want to be publicly associated with downloading pornography. Yeah. yeah. It, it creates even, even bigger problems. We saw um, one operation that did this was indicted and pleaded guilty earlier mm-hmm. this year. Um, but there are lots of company, lots of porn studios that that file thousands of these cases every year, and it's it's not illegal, but it's definitely frowned upon. Okay, so where did the court come down on our man Richard Leibowitz? Like, yeah, in terms, of, like you say, it's like a fraught definition <clears throat> or whatever. But what did they say about him? But so, wh- I mean, what's interesting about the federal court system is you, the judges are people. So like, it's th- true. This guy is filing <laughs> hundreds of cases. So in far, that's one a good thing. Federal courthouse. <laughs> They noticed. Um, right. So Judge Denise Coate um, in, here in Manhattan, she seems to, over the last year, have lost her patience with Leibowitz. Mm-hmm. Um, in another case last year that we covered a lot, she um, she initially filed, hit him with a bunch of sanctions for his behavior in a case and then um, uh, wheeled them back, but said um, only on the, on, on the condition that he took ethics training <laughs> and like a professionalism training, basically yeah. a CLE. Um, uh, and in another case, which is more important here, she, in in her order, called him, quote, a known copyright troll, recounting how many cases he had filed and everything else. Shots across the bow. Exactly. So Leibowitz didn't like that one bit, and it sort of makes sense. I mean, if this is his business model, if this is the kind of litigation he's doing, the next time he files any of these cases, people are going to, the defendant is immediately going to say, going to cite Judge Coate, where she called him a known copyright troll, makes his life more difficult. Yeah, it's more than just something gauche. Like, it's actually going to have an, an impact. Exactly. Yeah. And and guys like me are going to write about it. So um, he filed a motion asking her to redact the statement from the order, um, saying his basic argument was that the troll term really only applies to those pornography studios that I was talking about earlier, that that is copyright trolling. And what he's doing is just vindicating the rights of his clients so that using the troll term against him was inaccurate and harmful and everything else. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the judge didn't go for that. Yeah, Judge Coate didn't buy it. Um, in fact, she doubled down on the on the earlier one. It seemed like <laughs> it was funny. In, in the ruling at one point, she says, like, I have been very lenient, all things considered. <laughs> sure. And, like... Um, but so I'll just read from from the ruling. As evidenced by the astonishing volume of filings coupled with an astonishing rate of voluntary dismissals and quick settlements in Mr. Leibowitz's cases in this district, it is indisputable that Mr. Leibowitz is a copyright troll. <laughs> um, she said that it was an apt term to describe him and that uh, that quote, press coverage that accurately summarizes the status and outcomes of Mr. Leibowitz's cases in this district does not present undue and extreme hardship. Good news for you, Bill Donahue, as you continue to write about exactly. this. Exactly. Like, actually, you're a copyright <laughs> double troll, sir. Uh, um, yeah. So we will see what happens. I assume this is not going to impact him uh, continuing to bring these cases. We'll see if we can get to a thousand anytime soon. He'll probably um, he'll probably lean into it. That's what I would do if I yeah, were. Yeah. Did him. he respond but, at all? Yeah. Like, he did. He... I mean, I reached out to him for comment when I was reading the story, and he called it. Um, he he criticized the judge for quote propagating a false stereotype against an officer of the court. 
um, and said that he was considering his appellate options to get, quote, the pejorative uh, term <laughs> redacted. <laughs> so we will see. He's he's obviously not the most prolific uh, copyright attorney, but he is definitely someone that, that anyone who practices copyright law in and around New York knows about. So a lot of people are going to be watching this. You know, before I had a podcast, co-hosted a podcast. You co-host a podcast? It's true. I'm. Some would say I'm doing it right it's now. It's so natural you don't That's even notice. That's unsettled legal wow. ground. I don't know. Um, but, you know, when I would listen to other podcasts and the hosts would do the thing where they ask people for reviews, and I was always supportive of that, and I try and review podcasts I like, but I didn't quite understand how actually important it is to the business of podcasts. And, and you it, know what? It I is was, important. I was supportive of it, but I never really went and did it. So we really we really need you to go and do it. Shoes, it be... shoes on the other foot now. All right, here's why. When someone goes on to review the podcast, if you give us a five-star review, that's great. It, it sort of boosts us up in the algorithm and other people can find us. It also us. boosts our confidence. I was going to say the thing that boosts my confidence the most <laughs> is a written review yeah, that's that explains nice. what you like about the show because I think people like different things and it just helps people sort of read through those and decide if they want to subscribe to us. So if you like the show, head on over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a review. It really helps. This week, a Colorado federal jury decided a closely watched case that could have big impacts on the future of the marijuana industry in states where the drug is legal. A cannabis grower was sued by his neighbors under a statute called RICO. That's the one we usually think of when we're talking about mobsters. They said that the smells from his facility damaged their property. With us to talk about what the case will mean for the cannabis industry, we're joined by senior Denver courts reporter Diana Novak-Jones. Welcome to the show, Diana. Thanks for having me. So we know that um, marijuana is legal to grow and sell in Colorado, but not legal on the federal level. And that's always going to lead to sort of this weird tension between those two laws. How did that manifest in this case? How did it come together here? So this suit is really a reminder that no matter what a state says about marijuana or cannabis within their state, there's always going to be this sort of looming federal law that's outlawing it. And so basically, the fact that cannabis is illegal under federal law allowed this couple, Hope and Michael Riley, to file this federal RICO suit against their neighbor, Parker Walton, who's a cannabis cultivator. And federal law, you know, as you mentioned, outlaws cannabis. So they had to really draw on that to attack a otherwise legal business in Colorado. And under RICO, they had to prove damages from a criminal enterprise. So this cultivation business fits that definition when you look at it from a federal perspective. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about that. We've it's come up actually the last uh, in the last couple of months here, RICO, like sort of creative use of RICO laws. Um, when you hear that, it comes to mind, you know, that you know Al Capone and the mob and organized crime and stuff like that. How does it how, how does that get wedged into this issue of, like, legally growing cannabis within a state? So, you know, the theory of this suit was that 
under federal law, cannabis cultivation is a criminal drug enterprise. And so when you bring a RICO suit, you need to prove that you were damaged by a criminal enterprise. So the suit, um, you know, basically said we want to recover for the property damage that was caused by Parker Walton's business. This, and it really actually focused on the smells yeah. and the sounds of the cannabis business. So they, the Rileys claimed that they could smell cannabis from their front porch, that they were just, um, they had to listen to the sound of these air conditioners that Walton uses to cool his plants down, just going all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, initially, the U.S. district judge that was assigned this case dismissed the RICO claims because he said that the family hadn't really done enough to show that they'd been damaged. They'd never tried to sell their land. They'd never gotten it appraised. They didn't have a concrete, you know, yeah. moment where they could say we're gonna we're gonna make less money. Yeah, it's too it's it's it, property. It's too theoretical. I mean, you're just saying like this is this is like by association not good for my property, which which abuts this. Right, but um, in June of last year, the Tenth Circuit disagreed and said they didn't need to show that they had been damaged quite yet. That the suit technically was an illegal. Uh, was alleging an illegal enterprise under federal law. So that's really where the ball got rolling. And that's a big deal, Diana, right? I mean, was this the first time that a circuit court had said that RICO could be applied in this way? Yeah, it was. Um, And this trial was the first time that these claims had ever been presented to a jury, that a jury had ever been asked to decide could, could somebody prove that a legal cannabis business had injured them under RICO. Well, and it seems like, I mean, the as so far as we can tell, the federal ban on marijuana isn't going away anytime soon. So if just the if just that fundamental tension, you know, legal at the state level, illegal on the federal level is something you can hang uh, a RICO claim on, it seems like almost a, like an existential crisis for these companies that are operating in states where it's legal, right? Right. So it's kind of a, it's a really, it's an, it's a ruling that applies far beyond just the operator of a cannabis business. So RICO allows you to file a suit against anyone who is involved in this alleged criminal enterprise. So when we're talking about a legal marijuana cultivation business, we're talking about anyone from, you know, the contractor that built the facility the company that delivers the water to the facility, the lawyers that drew up the cultivators' contracts with mm-hmm. the dispensaries that they sell to, even the facilities insurer, and even you know the bank yeah, that yeah. the that holds the account. So, originally, the suit did bring claims against several of those players, although the Rileys ended up sort of focusing in on Parker Walton, the cultivator himself. So the the 10th Circuit's decision in this case was really a turning point for the industry. And not only because we had a federal appellate court saying, yeah, you know, RICO does work in states that have legal marijuana. It, beyond opening the door to potentially more RICO suits, it allows for simply just the specter of lawsuits Mm -hmm. and the treble damages that come with RICO. So even if, you know, you own a, a cannabis business and, and that, that's not going to scare you away from, you know, operating your business, it really could 
scare off the other businesses that a dispensary or a cultivation facility rely on to operate. Yeah. So it's basically a way to starve out the cannabis business. Okay. So, I mean, you've, you've made the stakes pretty clear here. People were well spooked about the idea of facing litigation over stuff like this. And that brings us up to the trial. Um, so it's this, it's this uh, landowning couple versus uh, this cannabis grower. How did it play out? You were there in the courtroom. Uh, you know, what, what were the dynamics there? So the trial was just about whether or not the Rileys, the couple that owned the land, mm-hmm. had, had actually been damaged, and then by how much. And, uh, and everyone was watching this to see, you know, how those kinds of claims hold up. And, and obviously a judgment against the grower isn't necessarily, you know, going to spur more suits, but it's not going to deter them either. Um, so the Rileys, as I said, said that they could smell cannabis all the time on their land. They said their relatives didn't want to visit them. And Hope Riley, who testified at the trial, you know, talked about her daughter smelling it, her 12-year-old daughter, and, and how much it had altered what had been their dream property. So Walden countered these arguments by saying that, you know, he's operating a legal business. He's on agriculturally zoned land, and it, it was no secret when the Waltons bought their property that they could easily be end up abutting some sort of crop grow operation. You know, maybe they weren't thinking marijuana, but it's farmland, basically. Yeah. Um, so it was really a battle of experts, ultimately, and Walton brought out a, a chemical engineer who used a device called a nasal ranger, <laughs> which I had never nice. heard of before, um, basically to measure a smell. So she wore the nasal ranger on Walton's <laughs> property, and, and it actually can give you a reading of what, how intense a scent is, and it's used frequently, I guess, in nuisance-type neighbor disputes over smells, you know, landfills and feedlots. Could use that in my college house. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So they, uh, so the ranger did detect a scent in a few different spots on Walton's property, but it was below the lowest measurement on the device. De minimis dankness. Yeah. (laughs) So it was, you know, you don't really know how that evidence is going to play. Exactly. Yeah. Well, especially Um, since it's a novel issue, as we already discussed, but... Yeah. Right. So we had this fight about, you know, the smell, essentially. Um, and they present this competing evidence. How did the jury take it? What what was their ultimate verdict here? So, as I said, you know, the jury was tasked with deciding whether the smell and the noise actually injured the Rileys. And after about three hours of deliberation, the jury said that the Rileys hadn't proved an injury here at all. They were swayed by the nasal ranger. I mean, I think I think we can safely say that now. We won't know, unfortunately, what was the turning <laughs> no, point. I know, yeah. But <laughs> I'm swayed by the nasal ranger. I mean, if someone told me that there was no smell there, yeah, that sounds right. right. Science. Okay, so the grower prevailed here, but is that the end of the the story with this? I mean, this is one verdict, and it seems like when we were talking about the stakes, there was just a lot of fear that opening this Rico door could cause downstream problems. What's your take on that, Diana? Yeah, so this this verdict is definitely a mixed bag for the industry. You know, they took a hit with the Tenth Circuit's ruling, 
But the jury's finding might convince some plaintiffs not to bring an expensive RICO suit, you know, because they may not win. Attorneys from the firm that brought the Riley suit, Cooper and Kirk, said that after the verdict, they weren't done with this issue, and they warned cannabis business owners that they could expect, quote, many more days in federal court. And obviously, this is just one jury that decided not to award damages. Another jury could decide the opposite. But one thing to consider is that in Colorado and in other states that have legalized marijuana, the question of, of whether to legalize was frequently put to voters. It was in Colorado, and a majority was in favor. So when you're picking jurors, you're probably going to get a fair number that voted in favor of legalizing, who may not be open to the idea of RICO damages against a legal business. Yeah, I think we're probably going to hear much more about this. Thanks for explaining this first really critical trial to us, Diana. Sure. Up, up today's show. Guys, it was a really good one. I loved hearing about that sort of novel case that Diana was That was good. I was thinking about opening up a, uh, a legal cannabis business, but I don't it's know, too guys. Much trouble. It's uh, too much I trouble. Could, I, I, don't, I don't really want to get sued for RICO. Well, I'm going to mash up a couple of news items that we talked about today because I am about to order a nasal ranger on Amazon. Wow. <laughs> Big time. That's what you have to do to end this show. I mean, yes. Well, thanks for being with me, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. See you again next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Diana Novak-Jones, and contributing reporter, Matthew Santoni. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about in today's show, check us out on our website at law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and join us again next week. <laughs>